You know, in the little uh, devotional that we use on Thursday mornings uh, in the prayer meeting uh, to guide our prayer, there is a uh, prayer for illumination uh, written by George Herbert. And, uh, you know, when he writes something, I think it's uh, usually good to reflect on it. But here, here's the prayer, and uh, pray this with me when I read it. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Okay, we're uh, taking a look in Luke chapter 12, continuing on. Uh, The second coming of Jesus is a big deal. Uh, I don't know if that needs to be said, uh, but I know that for some of us, uh, it kind of slips our mind. Uh, The second coming of Jesus is mentioned in all but three of the books of the New Testament. It's a dominant theme. Two of those books are 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, So in every all but one of the major books of the New Testament, the second coming is mentioned. Uh, Jesus has already alluded uh, to the judgment, to the consummation earlier in this chapter. Uh, In verses 2 and 3, he talked about a day coming when nothing that is covered up that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be made known. And uh, he said, therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. Uh, he mentions the one who has the power to cast into hell in verse 5. Uh, he talks about being acknowledged or denied before the angels of God in verses 8 and 9. So again, there's this allusion uh, to the judgment or the consummation uh, already in this chapter. Uh, in the creeds that we consider to be central and foundational, Uh, to the Christian faith, uh, there is mention of the second coming. We'll recite the Apostles' Creed uh, later on in the service, but in the Apostles' Creed we will say, uh, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, At least that's the old way of saying it. From there, his being seated at the right hand of the Father, from there he will come in glory, or come to judge the quick and the dead. Nicene Creed says, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Uh, There's a rich theological body of material on the second coming. Um, You'd you'd mark yourself as a certain kind of church if you did a series of sermons on the second coming, and uh, we won't do that. Uh, But when it comes up in the Scripture, we need to pay close attention to it. Uh, It's called the day of the Lord. It's called the judgment. It's called the consummation. Uh, The second coming was one of the five fundamentals uh, that the original fundamentalists wrote of in 1910. Uh, They were cutting against the stream of academic theology, and they said there were five things that you had to believe in order properly to be a Christian. One of those was biblical inerrancy, and then the other four had to do uh, with Jesus, Uh, his deity, his virgin birth, his resurrection, his physical resurrection, and his return. Uh, When I first read those five fundamentals, I thought the return seemed a little bit odd, uh, not nearly as central as his deity and his resurrection and his virgin birth, but in fact, it's just as central. It's just as important, and it's one of the things that was being denied. Uh, Ironically and pointedly, Uh, The Anchor Bible Dictionary says that modern scholars have tended to avoid or neglect the topic. Um, 
the, the modern scholars prefer to deal with more congenial topics. But here it is uh, in this passage. Now, if you're old like me, uh, the first book I ever read as a new Christian was called The Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, and it was about the second coming, but it was about the second coming from a specific point of view. It's a point of view called dispensationalism. It's actually the, it was the 1970s version of the Left Behind series. And I don't want to step on any toes, but that's one perspective uh, that maybe not be, uh, uh, maybe is not as helpful uh, as uh, it might seem. Uh, it's my conviction that we've distorted the doctrine of the second coming uh, into guessing about world politics and about the timing of it. And we are really missing the point. Uh, The doctrine was never intended uh, for such purposes. And if you comb through the New Testament and find the references to the second coming, you will find uh, that the doctrine is always ethical. It always has to do with how you're living your life. And I think it's kind of a critical point that we use Bible doctrine in the way that the Bible recommends that we use it. Uh, I remember when I was doing campus ministry uh, at Wake Forest University right out of seminary, and students would come to me and say, hey, we had this knockdown, drag-out fight over predestination last night in the dorm room. And I, I would tell them, go back and read what the Bible says about predestination, and I think you'll find that the doctrine was not intended uh, to have you fighting it out uh, in your dorm room. Try to figure out the, the, the purpose for which God has given uh, the doctrine. Well, the same thing having to do with the second coming. <clears throat> the doctrine of the second coming is always ethical. It's not about figuring out who is the Antichrist, where he is, and when he's coming. Uh, but it has to do uh, with how you're living your life, with how you are uh, reflecting uh, the near coming of Christ. I mean, here plainly in this text, uh, Jesus says, the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Well, if you can't figure it out, you can't figure out who the Antichrist is and when he's coming and where he's likely to be hiding out in the meantime, uh, what do we do uh, with the doctrine of the second coming? Well, once again, uh, this section of the Gospel of Luke is uh, his uh, road trip. Uh, we're on the road with Jesus, on the road to Jerusalem. And uh, we've correlated a little bit uh, the anticipation here at Carriage Lane with a new uh, uh, era in the life of the church as a a new pastor is going to be called uh, and and getting ready for that. Uh, And so Jesus is getting his disciples ready for their next step, you know, their next step having to do with uh, his death and resurrection in Jerusalem and, and also for their life uh, after him uh, as the church is established. But here, there's another dimension. I don't know if you notice it in the subheading of the, uh, of, at least of the ESV, the subheading is, you must be ready. And that's a quote from this passage, you must be ready. And, uh, and our theme has been getting ready. Are you ready? Uh, but here, the, that added dimension is being ready not only for what awaits in Jerusalem, what awaits post-resurrection and ascension, but getting ready for the return of Christ, getting ready for the end of time, getting ready uh, for the consummation. So, Jesus teaches them, and this teaching is uh, very much consistent 
uh, with, with what took place in the previous passage. In fact, if you've got an old King James Version, there's not even a paragraph break uh, between verses 34 and 35. So it would just flow, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Uh, so it's not as an abrupt a shift as we might imagine. Uh, staying dressed for action, keeping lamps burning, fits in with being on the lookout against greed and anxiety, which we talked about last week. Uh, we don't often associate vigilance with a spiritual life, but Jesus would say, watch out, you may uh, fall asleep at the wheel. Uh, so that being said, let me read this passage, Faith Comes by Hearing and Hearing Through the Word of Christ. Uh, this is the Word of God. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants." But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, Okay, so the baseline is verse 35 Uh, Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Uh, Stay dressed for action actually equates to having your loins uh, girded. Uh, If you look at the footnote in the ESV, it it, it tells you that that's what it actually means. And it's really a direct reference, I think, to the instructions uh, that were given in Exodus chapter 12 uh, having to do with how one was to eat the Passover. Uh, They were to eat their Passover uh, dressed and ready for action. They were supposed to be dressed and ready to run for their lives. They had to make sure that their shoes were on, uh, that that their robes were tucked up, they had the staff in the hand, and they were ready uh, for disaster to strike. Um, And we could say, in some senses, the same thing about communion today, because communion really is a reflection on the Passover. At least the Passover was a foreshadowing of what we're doing. Uh, So that as we receive communion today, be dressed and ready for action. Uh, Make sure that you're ready to get on the move and to move quickly. 
the allusion to lamps burning is connected uh, in the passage with the tendency to go to sleep, uh, that is to relax and to forget. Uh, to be asleep is to be governed by dreams rather than reality. Uh, I love Bob Dylan's pithy statement one time. He said, you know, the only problem with the American dream is that you have to be asleep. Uh, and that's what is being alluded to here, this tendency to get sleepy, uh, this tendency to uh, focus your attention on your dream world. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm, I'm having a tough time getting to sleep. I concoct you know, something in my brain that has, you know, something to do with a vacation or travel or maybe even an Airstream trailer, and I go in that direction hoping it will help me get to sleep. But Jesus is saying, stay awake, at least for the point that he's trying to make about your spiritual life. Uh, Don't drift off to sleep, but rather stay awake, keep your lamps burning. And then follows uh, these illustrations from a functioning household. Uh, especially the servants of the house. The first illustration is the servants who wait for their master's return from a wedding feast. The second illustration from verse 39 uh, uh, is of of the master who is robbed. The third illustration, verses 42 to 44, is a servant who obeys in his master's absence and is blessed and receives a reward. The fourth illustration, verses 45 and 46, is the servant who disobeys in light of his master's delay, and receives a drastic, extreme uh, punishment. It it was an extreme punishment. It probably caught their attention. It was not unheard of. And then the fifth illustration is the servants who don't get ready and act, Uh, one of whom knows, and uh, he gets the worst of it, and one of whom is ignorant uh, and, uh, and gets not quite as bad. So culpability... Uh, is according to privilege there at the end of the passage. Uh, But the theme is vigilance in the light of the coming of Jesus. Again, he alluded earlier to the judgment, to the consummation, to pay attention to that, uh, to make sure that you would be ready to stand in the judgment, that you would profess Christ, that you would fear God and not man, uh, that you would be on your lookout for the various things that would distract you, or maybe even tear you down, or maybe even poison the community uh, that you lived in. Uh, But here, after alluding to those things, he tells them plainly that he's coming again, you know, when the Son of Man returns. Uh, The disciples ended up hearing this very clearly, and it became a big part of the gospel proclamation, uh, uh, really beginning with their account that Uh, The angels who appeared to them when Jesus was ascending uh, told them he's going to come back the same way that you're seeing him leave. Now, here's the problem is that was 2,000 years ago. And each passing century makes the delay more difficult. And again, the, 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 the message is probably even more urgent that we need to stay awake. You know, we ask the, the question, why is he taking so long? I remember in seminary, one of our chapel services, uh, Claire Davis was one of the history professors, very quirky in his presentation. Have you ever got to hear Dr. Davis speak? Uh, but he got up one time and said, did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? And he said it with some urgency in his voice. And, you know, we were all seminarians that, you know, no internet, you know, heads buried in Hebrew texts. And we had no idea what had happened the night before. 
and he said the Lord didn't come back. And, you know, got a chuckle out of that. Uh, But then he went on to preach about the anticipation of the Lord's coming and how for those who were waiting, uh, every day held a little bit of disappointment that the Lord hadn't come back the night before. Um, It's not an easy answer to the question, why is he taking so long? You know, these futuristic movies that we watch, I mean, they're always false. Some of them are kind of interesting in their accurate perception of what's coming, but most of them, they ask us to envision what life's going to be like 500 years down the road and 1,000 years down the road. And we used to say, should the Lord tarry, when we talked about the future, Uh, but even that has kind of slipped from our common vocabulary. Well, we've been warned. Jesus warned that there would be a delay. He said uh, that his coming back was a time when no one knew. He even says at one point, it's not even a time that he knows. So how do, you, how do you stay alert? How do you keep your lamp burning? Uh, what does it mean to stay awake? Well, one of the things that it clearly means is turn on the light. I mean, that's one of the things that happens when you need to wake up, when you need to keep from falling asleep, is you turn on the light and you start paying attention. Uh, you stop dreaming. Uh, you pursue not your own passions, not your own vague dreams of what a good life might look like, but you start pursuing, as Jesus has said earlier in this chapter, his kingdom and, uh, and his righteousness, pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, you know, the other place that comes to mind when you're thinking about the lamp is the psalmist famously saying, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, I don't, I don't know any other way to say this, but just to be very direct and very upfront, uh, that to be alert, to be awake, to keep your lamp burning is to not neglect uh, your immersion in the Word of God. And again, if you, if you are having a tough time reading the Bible on a daily basis, then you're falling asleep. You're getting drowsy. If you're beginning to think, well, you know, I don't really need this, or I'm reading it day after day and it's not sinking in, I'm kind of glossing over it and I can check off the chapter, but it hasn't impacted me, you're getting drowsy, you're falling asleep. And Jesus is saying, keep your lamp burning. He's saying, wake up. You know, the psalmist also says in a famous place, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. But what I love about that is Calvin's brief comment And Calvin's commentary on the Psalms are really worth looking at. But he says the psalmist is exhorting his sluggish soul to praise the Lord. You know, the psalmist knows that his soul is sluggish. David knows that his soul is not readily prompted to praise the Lord. So he has to tell it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Well, I think in the same way, You know, you and I need to exhort our souls to wake up. We joke and say, wake up and smell the coffee. Wake up and pay attention uh, to what is happening. And and, and with a view to saying that the the return of the Lord is near. It's close. I, I read this week that George Whitfield used to, in his journals, you know, recount some of the difficulties that he was going through, recount some of the persecutions that he was suffering. You know, a lot of people really hated him. A lot of people were opposed to his ministry. 
You know, when he first got going, none of the priests or the ministers in the Church of England would let him preach indoors, so he had to go preach outdoors. And slanders, you know, came against him. And he would write in his journal at the end of the night, well, when all of that is said and done, in a few days, we'll all be before the throne. In a few days. Uh, There's an old gospel song, Bluegrass, I think. A few more years. In a few more years. Well, a few more days is even better. A few more hours is even better. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, I know a lot of us, a lot of you are tempted by sexual immorality. You're tempted by sensuality. Uh, You're tempted by, you know, these things that Paul mentions here. You're certainly tempted uh, to quarreling and to jealousy. Paul says, wake up. If you're tempted by those things and they really do represent to you a strong pull, and I don't want to minimize that. I've felt the strong pull myself. But when you're feeling that strong pull, it's because you're getting drowsy. It's because you're not paying attention. And you need to wake up. Uh, I was reflecting uh, this morning. Um, don't tell me. Don't, my mind races in a lot of different directions. But, you know, I picked up the introduction to uh, one of the Russian novels. Uh, by Tolstoy, and the the guy that was writing about it, I think, really understood it, and he says, Tolstoy's uh, overriding conviction is that most people are not paying attention. Most people cannot see what is plainly in front of their faces, that their lives are governed by dreams and desires that bear no um, relationship uh, to the reality that's in front of them, and he goes on to explain how the novel... Uh, unpacks all of that. Uh, Jesus tells the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So Jesus is saying here, turn on the light. A few more days, a few more hours, a few more moments, and we will be standing before the throne of God. And I really think that that sensibility will change your life. It will make things different for you. I think it would affect the way that you approach worship, certainly affect the way that you approach uh, the, your private devotions, you certainly affect the way that you view the communion of saints, the fellowship of other believers, certainly affect the way that you would view uh, prayer. Uh, I, I want always to exhort people to come and pray on Thursday mornings. Now, I, I have this vivid memory we had little prayer meetings in Cambridge uh, when I was there, and they were sparsely attended. A dozen or so would show up. <clears throat> but you remember that uh, I think that 9-11 was on a Monday morning, wasn't it, in 2001? I think it was, a, was it not Monday morning? 
I think it was Monday morning. It was the beginning of the work week. I remember I was having breakfast with a guy, and, and we got up, and I was going to walk home. I lived in walking distance of the restaurant, and he pulled his car up alongside me and said, uh, go turn on your TV when you get home. Something's on the radio. And our prayer meetings were Tuesday morning. And, and that next morning, there were 50 people lined up outside uh, the door before I got there at 6 in the morning because uh, they needed to pray. Well, what had happened was they'd woken up. What happened was that reality had come crashing in and they knew the need to pray. Now, I, I wish I could say that was sustained. But Jesus is saying very clearly to you and me, keep your lamps burning. That is, wake up. Now, you know, what does it mean to stay dressed for action? I, I think it simply means uh, that it's an active pursuit. It's a heightened awareness. It's something that you do something about. And so one of the questions in the questions for reflection is, you know, how might this vigilance um, change your life? How, how might you change your practice in order to reflect this vigilance? What, what will you put into play? What relationship needs to be reconciled? What practice needs to be engaged? What practices need to be forsaken? Again, wake up. The Lord is near. Now, there are a couple of uh, hints here that go beyond the text that I think we ought to pay attention to. A couple of strong hints of what is to come. Uh, Your mind may have gone to this as I was reading the passage. Um, But verse 37 is really quite striking, isn't it? Uh, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. He will come and serve them. Now, that's kind of shocking. Uh, It's kind of unheard of. And in fact, there are other places in the Bible where Jesus says, look, if you servants do your duty, you know, don't pat yourself on the back for it. Just say, look, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm just a a dutiful servant. But here, this picture of the master himself dressing himself, and again, it's the girding of the loins, it's the same thing, Um, dressing himself for service and having them recline at table. You can almost skip by it, except for what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He did exactly that. At the Last Supper, you remember, in a, little, in a way that to Peter seemed unseemly, he took off his outer garment and got down on his knees and, uh, and washed the feet of his disciples. And we shouldn't miss the wonder here. It ought to uh, captivate us a little bit and say this is surprising. It's not only surprising, but it's amazing that this would take place. In the Sunday school class this morning, we noted that when Adam sees Eve, he says, this at last, this finally at long last, after naming all these other animals, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And there's a wonder in that. Well, there are many moments in the Bible where wonder is, is, is right in front of us if we'll pay attention to it. There is wonder to the master dressing himself for service and reclining at, uh, and having them recline at table. Uh, he will come and serve them. It almost puts, it, it puts the passage in a, a, a little bit of a, uh, it's almost a dreamlike quality. I, I mean, that 
goes against what I'm saying about waking up. But there's something magnificent. There's something unbelievable about this. Uh, one well-known preacher I read this week said this is his favorite verse in the Bible. And that's something for a preacher to say that. You know, there's a lot of favorite verses out there. Um, I remember hearing Sinclair Ferguson one time said he thought it was an odd thing that in the United States that people would bring him their Bibles and ask him to sign them. He thought, that's kind of a weird thing. It wouldn't happen in Scotland. And he said, and he was preaching at General Assembly, and he said, consequently, I've seen a lot of your signatures, other ministers that were at GA. And he says, and I know what your favorite Bible verses are, your life texts. And my guess is that very few people put Luke 12, 37. Uh, but this one minister said his favorite verse in the Bible, and it's good for us to step back and pay attention to that, especially as we come to the table this morning. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to see this more clearly than anything else in this passage. Sure, there are scary things here. You know, there is judgment. Uh, there is someone being torn to pieces. You know, there is accountability. And you might think to yourself, oh, that's what I hate about the church is all this language about accountability. Well, I want you to see all of that strong language in light of this one verse where the master himself dresses himself as a servant, invites the servants to recline at table, and then he serves them. Because that's really what is going on. Jesus, he actually did it uh, at the supper, and, uh, and that's the promise. It's what we're looking forward to. And it defines everything else about what Jesus does. Now, the second thing, of course, is uh, that reference to uh, the, uh, the one being torn to pieces uh, who uh, offends most grievously, excuse me, by, uh, by abusing uh, the other servants. Um, and again, when you see that kind of violent judgment that comes against this one who rightly deserved it, Uh, your mind goes to the fact that there was one who absorbed that punishment undeservedly and did so for the sake of love. And that's exactly what is happening to Jesus on the cross as he's being torn to pieces, figuratively. And his body remained intact, intact, but he is suffering the judgment of God. And just as the punishment of the master in verse 46 seems harsh, well, the crucifixion ought to be understood as unimaginably harsh. There's a brutality to it. You know, there are modern theologians, not Christians, who take the gravest offense at the cross. And, you know, my thought is that when I read them, say, uh, you know, to think, well, you you get it. You get what's going on here. You do understand it. We sing a song, oftentimes not at any time but Easter, where the lyric is, ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Uh, If you think your sin is no big deal, uh, that God could wink at it if he wanted to, that God could just let it go, and if he wanted to, you have no idea uh, the severity of the offense against God, and I would say against nature and against the whole universe that your rebellion uh, produces but it is seen in the one being torn to pieces on your behalf. 
And so it's, there's always a simple invitation, you know, that can come out of any passage. That as you see that, and some of you may be seeing it for the first time, you know, there's always the offer to come. So, you know, the song was appropriate for Communion Sunday. Uh, come to Christ. Come with repentance. Uh, come believing that he is able. And, uh, and come and receive uh, the offer of his grace and his mercy. We looked uh, in the Sunday school class this morning at, uh, at, at Genesis chapter 1. Uh, you know, the first verse probably everyone here has memorized. Uh, in the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Um, one of the writers that we were looking at this morning said, uh, the thing about the beginning is that it implies an ending. That if there is in the beginning, then there's also going to be at the end. And we're in the middle of all of that. We're closer to the end than we used to be. We're closer to the end than we know. Uh, But that last verse is the one that kind of hammers us. I don't want to be the bearer of bad tidings. Uh, But when Jesus says... Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. Uh, That's you. That's me too. I'm a little bit embarrassed about how much I've been given. I'm a little bit embarrassed about the mentors that I've had and the ministers that I've known and the fellowships that I've been a part of and the theological education that I got. And uh, and I'm usually pretty clear in my own brain that I am one to whom much has been given. Uh, But you are too. You are those to whom much has been given, and from you uh, much will be required, is the way it's said elsewhere. Uh, From you uh, more will be uh, demanded. Uh, Jesus has just said to all of them, your father, he calls them little flock, remember that? Uh, little flock, don't be afraid. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom has been given. Much has been given. And now much is required. And, you know, again, it's, it's not, don't sully that with any impure thoughts. It's just the nature of the gift, that if the kingdom has been given, then it has to change the way you live. I've often equated it, I mean, this is a dumb, maybe even a profane illustration, you know, but if you unwisely uh, went down to the convenience store this week or maybe a few weeks ago and bought a lottery ticket and they called you up and said a billion dollars is coming your way, you wouldn't live the same way. You know, the immensity of that distribution would affect you. Well, the immensity of being given the kingdom does, in fact, have its effect. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus and said this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Um, That's worth memorizing. It's worth thinking through. The grace of God has appeared, but we are also waiting for another appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the middle of that, we are being taught to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, zealous uh, for good works. I know that you know all of this, and as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking, uh, how am I going to bring something that everyone knows? Uh, But we tend to forget it, don't we? Uh, You know it, and you forget it, and so the, 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 the exhortation to wake up and keep your lamps burning is always uh, necessary, and we're always uh, dependent uh, on the Holy Spirit in the end anyway uh, to enliven our consciences. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're grateful that the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation. And yet you know our capacity, you know our weakness to fall asleep, to get drowsy, to forget, uh, to be tempted. And the crazy thing is in our temptation is that while we're being tempted and, and, and compromising, you know, we are focusing our own attention and patting ourselves on the back uh, to the places where we imagine ourselves to be succeeding. And so uh, we are to be pitied. Uh, but you are the God who pities uh, those who cry out to him for help. Uh, So please come and help us. Take your word, drive it deep, make it a swift word, that it would penetrate deep down into our souls where it might bear fruit. And then, Father, uh, feed us uh, with this bread and with this cup uh, for your own glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.